0: Welcome to the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. I don't have much to say about the baseball lockout, so for our purposes, we're not going to talk about it. Instead, I wanted to give some exposure to a couple of people in the sports analytics world who are doing good work in the area of analytics education. So we're going to talk to Jake Stone from Penn State and the Simply Sabermetrics YouTube series about baseball, and Allison Lucan of NHL.com and Root Sports Northwest to learn about how the other half lives. We're going to talk hockey analytics. Enjoy. Jake Stone is the Director of Baseball Operations and Player Development for the Penn State Baseball team. He also runs the Simple Sabermetrics YouTube channel, which has more than 8,000 subscribers. He'll be teaching a class for the Society for Baseball Research on Baseball Analytics that you'll be able to find online. Jake's also worked in the Baltimore Orioles organization as a minor league video and data assistant. A number of our people from our organization have done similar. Uh, Jake, hey, how's it
1: going? Good. Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: So we can go down two tracks here. And the first, I want to just establish like your credibility uh, with us. I gave a little bit of background about who you are and what you do. Can you tell us, a, tell us a little bit more about your coaching background first?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of have a different path into getting into coaching than a lot of people have, but it's becoming kind of a more uh, normal thing in today's game. But I actually did not play past the high school level. When I got into college, I started working as a student manager at the University of Iowa. And it was kind of a perfect storm of a lot of things coming together. My background was in kind of, or my interests at that time were more in kind of the analytical side of life in general, but specifically sports. And I I showed up at the University of Iowa and became a student manager. What that was at the time was the perfect storm of, of getting a ton of new technology in our sport and gaining a lot of responsibility to not just utilize and run this technology, but direction from our coaching staff to say, hey, we know that this stuff is important, but we also don't completely understand how to run it. So a lot of a lot of responsibility fell onto me to not only collect that information, but also interpret it and then assist the coaching staff in applying that information in an easy to understand way because they already had so much on their plates. And that was kind of the perfect storm of of learning all of those different things to be able to push me forward uh, into my career in baseball. And I kind of found at the end of my four years at the University of Iowa, when I went to go start applying for some um, jobs at the MLB winter meetings, uh, that the things that we were doing at Iowa in terms of in terms of our data application process was pretty unique, actually, especially at the college level. And I kind of took that to, as you said, uh, it kind of spawned into the uh, YouTube channel that I created. Where... I understood and I I learned this stuff hands on, but there wasn't a resource really on the internet for people just getting started. So through that process, I learned a ton. And then I wanted to give back in creating the YouTube channel. And that brought me to a job with the Orioles, as you mentioned. And I spent only a couple months there before I got offered a job to become the Director of Baseball Operations and Player Development at Penn State.
0: And what do you do in your current role?
1: Yeah, in my current role, Obviously, it's a kind of a mouthful of a title, so I have a, I have a bunch of responsibilities. The operations side is kind of logistical things in, in terms of the uh, operations of the team, working on the logistics of team travel, working closely with our athletic department. But honestly, what I'm most passionate about and what I spend most of my time doing is the uh, player development aspect of my job. And that's creating and managing our systems for collecting, interpreting, and applying data. And then also working closely with the coaching staff and players and educating them what that data means and how we are actually using it to get each player better. Because at the end of the day, our goal is both to win, but also to uh, develop our players to hopefully take them to the next level. Different schools have
0: different level of receptiveness when it comes to this. We had the head coach from Wake Forest come on to talk about what they do in their program. I've heard from others who have had struggles in trying to explain to collegiate coaching staffs, hey, Here's how this, this stuff works. How have you gone about proceeding with that?
1: I've been fortunate enough in my, uh, my current opportunity with Penn state to have a coaching staff that's very receptive of this information. The players also have been pretty bought in on it. I think the interesting thing is, is even if you don't have buy-in from the coaches or players in terms of, I need to look at these numbers. I need to understand what these numbers are saying. The, job and the responsibility kind of falls on somebody in a role like mine to do that behind the scenes work, because not every player is going to want to sit down and talk for a half hour about what these numbers mean on his post game report. Some of them just want to go up there and huck it. But that doesn't mean the things that you're seeing in the player development plans aren't goals that you need to be achieving. So it's kind of a balance between for some people that may be in a a different situation to do the work behind the scenes, but then also find other ways around getting those results on the field.
0: So do you have a story of an example of like something clicking with a player or a coach where maybe they were a little resistant, but you were able to open a door, maybe in a non-traditional way, you were able to open a door or in a traditional way that got them kind of on the right path and got them thinking that, hey, this this stuff can can help me improve.
1: Yeah, there, there are a couple examples, and I'll, I'll start kind of with a, with a broad example of when going about this, the way that we go about trying to get this information to players is a bunch of different ways. There's a ton of, of research out there on motor learning and the fact that some, some athletes are more maybe verbal learners, maybe some are more visual, maybe some respond to like seeing the data on those reports better, but everybody has their own way of learning. So where some athlete may want to look at that report for... For X amount of time after an outing, some players might want to hop on the mound, and when they throw a pitch, they'll feel something good, and maybe they can turn to our edutronic video and say, oh, that's what that looks like. I can replicate that moving forward. So there, as for a specific example, I haven't had to work with a ton of athletes that I get pushback necessarily from all of this, but one good example was a player that we had been working on a basically had a curveball and a slider that looked pretty pretty similar in terms of movement profile and velocity. And we've been working on trying to generate a new slider for the longest time. And, and he had a pretty good slider. Then we went to the curveball. And occasionally, one would spin off that looked just identical to the, to the slider that we had originally been throwing. And we were able to look back at the edgertonic footage. And he was, he was a guy who spiked his curveball. So he had one, his index finger kind of crunched onto the baseball. And that was pretty much to get it out of the way. And we actually saw on the video that even though that finger was squished down into his, into his palm, when he would release the ball, that finger would extend and touch the ball, which would change the axis, which would put poor spin on the ball. And that's just kind of an aha moment. Like, oh my goodness, this makes sense. Why every so often these become bad and something like that wouldn't have been necessarily available or information that we would have been able to take with us to try and make a change for that player.
0: I like that. Uh, I like that you said that the players seem to be extremely receptive to it. I'm thinking back to a conversation that we had with someone who worked for the Phillies in a previous episode who said that her way of getting through to the coaching staff involved the use of, of all things, a poop emoji was her way of getting through the different things for different people. As you said, you were able to just point out an example right there. I want to talk about the videos because the videos are awesome. And one of the things that I really like about your videos is that you basically show the process that goes on in the mind of someone like myself or Eno Saris or Mike Petriello as we write. You're kind of like, I I would call it a Sherlock Stone, so to speak. So for example, here's Adam Wainwright. Let's start with this, and then go to this, and then go to this. And and it's not this, so let's go to this.
1: What he is doing right, no pun intended, is that his sinker ranks as the 23rd best pitch in the majors this year, in the second best of all sinkers. His called strikes percentage is way up to 45.4%. That ranks 10th best among pitchers who have had 200 sinkers taken. And his strikes called at the edge of the zone has increased to a crazy 55%, ranking first among all starting pitchers. So these are a few things that have aided in his resurgence. The other important thing to note is that his expected Woba on his sinker is 338, one of the biggest splits in all of the league. So of course he may be benefiting from some luck this season too.
0: I'm curious about the approaches that you take for evaluating pitchers and hitters in these videos, and if there's an example or two that you'd like to point out.
1: I think that that's uh, that's funny, Sherlock Stone. I haven't heard that one before, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the way that I kind of see those videos of the MLB breakdowns is is the in the beginning, the channel was created to provide people with kind of a a base level understanding of here's what this metric means, here's what this statistic means, and here's how we can kind of apply it. As we've kind of covered all of our bases there, we can continue to build up, and that kind of lead led me to kind of these MLB breakdown videos. And the thing that I really like about those style videos in general is it's very applicable to what someone may be going through. If they're looking at this data on their own, for their own players, like here's what made somebody successful. Here's where they were in the past. Here are the numbers that you can look to see how maybe something has changed over time. And this is the result of that. And being able to pinpoint, Hey, here's one of my favorite players or one of the breakout players from this season. It really makes it real to people. And that's one of my favorite things about doing those style videos is it's it's real life. These are these are data points that have changed and the results are there to back it up.
0: And they're nice short videos that typically range from 5 to 10 minutes. It's very clear too from the covers that you create for each of them. What the topic's going to be. You are someone clearly with a strong background in information presentation, which I very much appreciate. Do you
1: have a favorite one or two that you that you'd like to cite just for for ones that you've created in the last year or so? Oh man. In the last year, I think some of my favorite ones that I think have helped people a ton is I did a high versus low spin rate video. That's something that is a little bit clear now to people, but people just getting started hearing all the information about the sticky stuff and higher spin rates better. It's it's very applicable to some more people to understand like, yes, higher spin rate is, is more rare and there are benefits of each. But just because you may have low spin rate or an athlete with low spin rate doesn't necessarily mean they're any worse. You just need to understand that for the way that they're pitching. Being able to use, again, another example of a, a pair of big leaguers kind of helps illustrate that point. And another one that I that I really enjoyed was obviously kind of topical now is uh, the video on the MLB lockout, just kind of showing, hey, here, here are some of the things that this is what's going on right now. And here's the information that you need to understand. And, and here's what you can take of it so that it just, it's a confusing time for people who may not be in the know or people who, who haven't had the opportunity to spend a ton of time like I have kind of researching everything that's going on or have the connections that I do in the industry. So those are two that pop into mind. But of course, the things like the Wainwright, Kevin Gossman. Logan Webb, some of those MLB player breakdowns are are some of my favorites as well.
0: Yeah, they're very very good. Corbin Burns, Tyler Glass now, Shane Bieber, and then things that involve scouting. If you're someone that's an aspiring, I think someone that aspires to do what you're doing, there are topics like what's behind a good catcher sign system or advanced scouting things to know. Like here are the things that you should be looking for if you want to do advanced scouting at whatever level that you're coaching at. One or two other things for you here.
1: What do you want to do in your career? Oh man, good question. Yeah. So, I'm very I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm I'm looking to stay in the player development realm. Most likely the way that that looks is is moving towards a pro job in the future. The way that I've kind of gone about it is is I'm really passionate about teaching, obviously through my simple Saber Metrics work. So, that could look anywhere from managing kind of minor league operations in terms of player development or the operation and implementation of data or technology or getting into some sort of coaching role similar to kind of the the responsibilities that I have right now in my current role in terms of I kind of act as the translator between the data and the front office and the players and the coaches in terms of understanding what this stuff actually means and how we can actually grow from
0: it. And what advice would you have for someone? I know that certainly within our company, there are a lot of video scouts that would love to be doing what you're currently doing at a place like Penn State. And I'm sure there are plenty of people beyond our company that are listening that would think that as well. What advice would you have for someone who wants to do what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that has helped me the most is one, you always have to be open and continuously learning. That's something that has benefited me from, from the beginning. I'm putting out these videos and and maybe some people look to me as an expert in that realm. And there are a lot of things that I feel pretty confident on, but there are a lot of things I know that I do not know. And so continuously learning is a big portion of that. And then the other thing is just networking and keeping connected. One of the reasons I was able to hear about this opening at Penn State was the now hitting coach from the universe, or the hitting coach at Penn State worked with me as a volunteer assistant when I was at Iowa. And in doing a good job and working with him and, and keeping that connection alive, he was the first one to reach out to me when this opening came up saying, hey, I think that you would be a good person for this role. And that's similar to how I ended up getting my job with the Orioles as well Is I networked with some uh, area scouts when I was uh, an undergrad at the University of Iowa. And I had helped them, created reports for them, gave them any information that they ever needed. Then when I needed a job, I was able to reference those people and they were able to point me in the right direction in terms of at least getting an interview or talking to somebody. Those would be my, my two biggest pieces of advice are one, continuously learn And two, start networking. Find somebody that's doing what you want to do and and reach out to them, give them a call.
0: Very, very much so. And how can people get more information about the Sabre course?
1: So the Sabre course is live now over at sabre.org slash analytics slash certification. You'll be able to sign up for the first course, which is the one that I am the instructor on. And there are going to be two more, more advanced courses to come over the next year or two.
0: Conversational analytics and critical thinking in baseball, I believe is the title of the first one, right? Yes, it is. Excellent. Jake Stone, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Thank you very much, Mark. Those of you who are regular listeners know that we like to dabble outside of baseball every so often. We've talked about the analytic strategies and approaches to stand-up comedy, hurricane predictions, and jeopardy. And today I wanted to look at another sport, and one that our company doesn't cover, which disqualifies football and basketball. So we turn to hockey and welcome in one of the top analytic writers in the sport, Allison Lucan of Root Sports Northwest and NHL.com. Hey Allison.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: So Allison previously covered the Blue Jackets for The Athletic, where she was able to do one of my favorite things, talk shop with players and combine that with data analysis. Now she does something similar with the Kraken, particularly with a regular column analytics with Allison. So I guess my first question, and these articles will be linked in the show notes, what's the goal of what you're trying to do with the pieces that you're writing about hockey analytics for NHL.com?
2: As you said, basically, we have a series called Analytics with Allison, and the Seattle market is familiar with hockey. They've had other levels of hockey here for quite some time, but with NHL hockey coming to the area, we wanted to introduce fans both to NHL-level hockey, to hockey in general, if maybe they hadn't followed the sport before, and then also bring to the table a way to think about the sport analytically. So it's just touching on a player or maybe introducing a stat or talking about a concept to give fans who are interested in understanding the game, either from an entry level or from a deeper analytical level, a look into that way of thinking about the game.
0: One of the cool things that you do with those pieces is you take something that's relatable from like the last week or two that Dave Haxtell, the coach, may have said, or that you saw from a player that happened in a game, and it allows you to, I guess, make the connections a little easier. So our company's business is based on being able to chart the game, combining what we see on TV with something like what StatCast tracks, and we run into plenty of issues with that. As an introductory kind of thing for our audience, what are the big challenges that the hockey analytics community, both the public and private one face at this time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that what hockey faces their biggest challenge, particularly publicly, is that of the major sports, hockey is probably the farthest behind for what is a very complex game. The majority of our public facing analysis, at least the ones that the stuff that we can do quickly in real time, is based on shot data. That's really the only thing we can get real time. Anything else like passing data or positional data. Or formation data, or strategic thought—that all has to come either with delay through camera-based tracking or through manual tracking.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine that the process for that is—I know what the process is for what we do—and and, and baseball is a slow sport. I can only imagine what what the process is like trying to track if you were going to try to track passing or. You know things like entries and exits and all those sorts of things. So I can imagine quite a lot of difficulty in that. What are some? I'm just curious. What are some of the better things you've seen with regards to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, there's Corey Schneider is an individual who is amazing, and he 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 sets on a project every year to manually track every single NHL game. So he gives us information on rush chances for checking, passing both at a player. And then of course he can consolidate that to a team level. And then depending on what your budget is, either as an organization, or if you're in the, a member of the media, you can get access to companies like SportLogic that do have camera-based tracking. Um, Stathletes is another one where they can share some data that usually you can get within... 24 hours or so from them. Those are some, some key things. And then a lot of individuals I've done some of it, you know, depending on a passion project or an idea you really want to explore, you can sit down and do a bunch of manual tracking. It just takes time.
0: (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So One thing that I've always wanted to do is I watch the Rangers a lot and Sam Rose and Joe Micheletti have been the broadcasters for a long time. Before that, Sam Rose and John Davidson. I want to keep track and I think it'd be a cool project across teams for people to keep track of how often the broadcaster says that was a good hockey play or something (laughs) of that ilk, right? And then just track who has like the most of those over the course of a season. We track what we call good fielding plays. To me, like there are so many things in hockey that are unaccounted for, like the battles along the wall. Or the good play, a deflection in a two-on-one, a deflection by the defenseman to keep the pass from being made, or to force a, to cut off the angle to force a bad shot. There's so much stuff that can't be tracked, or that isn't tracked, just because it would require incredible manpower. But I want to talk about things that are tracked. And in hockey, you have stuff like coursey, which is just things like shot attempts, and then expected goals, which takes into account like what you were talking about, that we have shot data, and we have all sorts of models in baseball to look at expected performance. Can you explain to us expected goals and the flexibility it has in uh, in evaluating teams, individuals, and goalies?
2: Sure. And, you know, And again, the people who are doing this work are just wizards because they're working with limited information. But expected goals is Shot quality is what we'd like to call it, particularly to make it a little bit more accessible. We'll look at things depending on the model, and there's about five or six out there in the public space that will look at things like what type of shot was taken? Where was the shot taken? What is the game state? So was the team on the power play or were they playing at even strength or what, you know, what was how much time was left? What is the score? Was there a rebound before the shot was taken? And then any other kind of little you know flavor or spice that each creator has wanted to add. Some models include, was it a shot off turnover? Was it a rush shot? What handedness is the shooter? Some models include things like rink bias. We know that at some rinks, certain things seem to trend more highly or less highly, a certain type of event. And then we also can look at things like shift length and where we might be in the game from a time perspective, particularly if it's a power play. So it's a really creative application of the data that we do have to try and extrapolate how dangerous each shot is that gets taken on the ice.
0: It's maximizing everything that's available within the hockey data sphere. Is there a, a wish list for you, something that you'd like for it to be incorporated into that that currently isn't?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, know, you know, I think that if we could really start to get to a point of incorporating more about the shooter, things that we knew about the shooter, and some models are starting to do that. I mentioned passing data. If we could incorporate the danger of a pre-shot pass, where did it come from? How fast was it between the pass and the shot? Was there any sort of traffic between the shooter and the goaltender? Was the goaltender screened? Was the shooter pressured? And if so, from where and by whom? I think those things, when I talk to, to NHL players, those are things that they think matter. And so I'd love to see if we could incorporate them as well.
0: That's something that was particularly cool from your writing is that, as you said, you've talked to players about analytics. And I think there's an understanding, okay, they don't necessarily have to know the exact, but they can essentially be a helpful piece here. Is there a player in particular that was really insightful uh, when it came to this?
2: You know, I've always really enjoyed a couple players. Josh Anderson, who's currently with the Habs, was always great talking to me about systems-based stuff. So if I was asking, you know, why are you setting up this way? How are you setting up? What's the point? He would always make time to talk to me about that. And Seth Jones was always willing to talk about the the thought process of the game. And, you know, for me, it's always been very important that when I go in to talk to a player or even a coach, it's any mention of anything statistical or analytical barely comes into the conversation. We're talking about hockey and it's my job to translate what the stat defines or what the stat implies or measures into things that they think versus coming in and trying to make them understand analytics. That's not my job. That's not their job. It's my job to translate what I'm asking into hockey terms so that they can speak to me in the language that they're most comfortable in.
0: Right. And I think that that was one of the, I don't want to say like errors, but one of the experiences that people had in the earlier days of baseball analytics too, was that there was a little bit of a force feeding of it upon people. And it's, it's good to see that in hockey, there's an understanding that force-feeding it is not necessarily the way to go. So at our company, uh, one of the big things that we track is defense. And I've been watching hockey since I was like seven. So we're going to be coming up in 40 years. And I'm still trying to figure out a lot of things. I root for the Rangers just to make this kind of relatable. And they've got the Norris Trophy winner, yeah, Adam Fox. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like he's considered a good defenseman because of his offensive game. Whereas someone who I think should have been considered during his time with the Rangers, Ryan McDonough, now with Tampa, he's a very defensive-oriented defenseman. And I say all this to get to what I think is a fairly simple question. What are the best advanced stat tools for evaluating individual player defensive performance, given what we have right now?
2: (laughs) Well, I I am known, I tell anyone who will listen, that my holy grail in hockey is finding a way to accurately evaluate defense because we don't really have it. You know, the the question I always pose and I've had great conversations, Ian Cole, who's a defenseman, he and I had long conversations about this of how do you measure the absence of something happening? And again, because hockey data is also primarily shot based, defense is primarily measured in terms of lessening shot volume or shot quality against and because of the limitations of our data publicly at least privately there can be a lot more publicly we can't look at things like pressure or did you push a player back or challenges or board battles or things like you said and something i wrote quite a few years ago now was talking about exactly your point which is when the league says best defenseman it's usually a defender who also puts up a lot of points but if we look at all of the leading metrics that we have available publicly today, different defensemen lead in all of those categories. And so we are doing ourselves a disservice by saying a defenseman who's offensive is a good defenseman versus saying who's just a really good defender. And I, we have approximations. And I think that we can publicly understand why we're using them today. But I think we can do so, so, so much better.
0: One thing that I think would be fascinating to do, I was just thinking about this, is to see who the coaches put on the ice in the final minute of a one-goal game to try to preserve that lead to see if coaches' perception matches what's actually out there. And I can remember there was a game earlier this year where Fox was not on the ice in the final seconds of the game that was close. But switching topics slightly, do you have a, a sense for what the difference is between what teams have access to and what the public ha- has access to at this point?
2: You know, I, I have, well, there's two answers to that question. So as I mentioned, you know, there are companies like SportLogic and leads who provide tracking data to teams currently. And I do have a little bit of a sense for that. It's a richer data set. And again, as I said, it can be turned around a little more quickly Quickly than public based tracking. And they can look at a little bit more. They can look at some passing data. They can look at some transitional play data, zone entries, zone exits. They can look at sequencing of events a little bit more directly. But then the second thing that teams are working with now, and it's going to be a while, in my opinion, before this really starts to be able to add value just because of the sheer volume of information that's coming across. The league is starting to bring about player and puck tracking, but it's like drinking from a fire hose because, (laughs) um, you know, it's not coming across in this very, uh, and nor it's it's just a raw data set of just thousands and thousands of data points from what I understand. And so just being able to get that data into a usable format is a Herculean task. And that's, you know, that's just beginning to happen now. So I think that that's there, but I think that it's going to be a while before it really Become something usable, and that's not because anyone isn't very smart who's working with it. It's just a just a massive chunk of work.
0: It's there. It's it's kind of like Statcast was in the early days for baseball. Uh, what teams are progressive when it comes to this? I have a feeling the one that you cover is is on that list.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I will say, and of course, I'm a little biased. I think that the Kraken have employed some of the brightest analytically based minds in any sport. They have individuals who have worked in other professional sports and with other professional league data. So I think that that's just amazing. But you know, there's there's so many teams that are really upping their game. I think, you know, the New Jersey Devils have Matt Kane, who's a tremendous mind. Eric Tolsky is in Carolina. The Vancouver Canucks are building up just here in the past week or so, a strong team. You know, I think that for a team to not value bringing in people to understand all the types of information that are out there now is just really unacceptable. And so whether teams are public about it or not, most have some really, really smart minds helping them do that.
0: Yep. Alexandra Mandricke, if I'm pronouncing that right, is the head of analytics for the Kraken. She was extremely active uh, publicly before that hiring. It was good to see them taking someone from the public sphere and putting them in such an important position. Is there something that the baseball analytics community could learn from the hockey analytics community?
2: Uh, You know, again, it's hard for me to answer that question because I do know, you know, the little that I have come to learn about baseball analytics, you know, it's baseball is so far ahead and it's done so much more. You know, the thing that my husband, who's a baseball fan, always teases is, you know, there's of course that. The, the ribbing of, you know, that baseball has become too analytically laden. And I think that the nature of the game gives a little bit more space for that. And, you know, maybe that's what it is. And and hockey is just a little so much more fluid and a little more crazy and unpredictable. And maybe it's never forgetting that that joy and that little bit of fun and feeding that. Even if you're doing things that are informed by analytics, can we always bring about the spirit of the game and and The fun of it and the entertainment of it, even as we strive for wins, which of course matter, and strive for revenue and success in in many avenues of our business, always remember to have some fun with it too.
0: Right. Absolutely. And again, just shamelessly plugging the team that I follow, the Rangers got heavily criticized during the offseason season for some of their, their moves to essentially build up a tougher, more physical team. And it would be interesting, and I imagine this is probably happening in some spheres, maybe I haven't necessarily seen it, it'd be interesting to see studies of that approach, because it didn't look like it was going to be a good approach, but it seems to have been a good approach so far. If we have this conversation again in five years, what are the developments that we're going to be talking about on the hockey side?
2: I mean, honestly, for me, the biggest battle, we know, like I said, that the league has this tracking data. The biggest battle is going to be finding a way to get some of this tracking data public. Teams have it, but if the public doesn't get it, our innovation slows and our ability to educate fans slows. So from a public perspective, I think that's my my biggest hope but, you know, if I could just look at the idea of analytics in hockey in general, I think there's just going to be some really wonderful questions we're going to be able to start to explore if we do get this tracking data. And it's it's things like looking at strategy. I think we're past this point of shot-based evaluation and the, the questions we want to answer are pushing the boundaries. And I think that the questions we're asking are the are exciting and we should be able to start answering them if we can get some more advanced data out there.
0: Yeah, here, here. Consider me a, a, a an evangelist for that as well. <laughs> Allison, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with your coverage. We'll be sure to link to what you've written
2: in the show notes. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much.
0: And this wraps up today's episode. Thanks to Jake Stone, Allison Lucan, and our producer, Justin Stein. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.